0: It's December eighteenth, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. On the 13th of April 1742, the greatest of all oratorials was premiered at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. Objections to presenting sacred texts in the London theatres had brought Georg Friedrich Handel to Ireland for these first performances. The Dean of the Cathedral, one Jonathan Swift, allowed the Dublin performances only when the work was clearly labeled a sacred oratorial. Presumably, The Messiah's use of seemingly random scriptures from both Old Testament as well as New Testament teachings presented challenges to ecclesiastical traditions. I've played two or three performances of the Messiah every year for the past 31 years. Decembers with the Messiah and the Nutcracker are as predictable as yearly tax returns. I suppose I could play these scores in my sleep. Oh, you know the old joke about the musician who dreams he's playing the Messiah and wakes up to find he's uh, playing the Messiah? Experienced orchestral musicians know every note of their parts inside out. I guess one would naturally expect that a work so frequently performed would engender a certain cynicism, and I won't deny that that is a reality for some musicians. You know, here we go again, another messiah, more bad jokes about the Honolulu chorus, and the hidden meaning of, we like sheep. Well, here's my confession. I love the messiah. I find my annual performance as a ritual of purification, sort of like entering a cathedral where every detail is unalterable and everything fits together in perfect balance. And I'm only playing the bassoon part. So apart from the incalculable beauty of the music, what makes the Messiah such an enduring treasure? Well, if I can return to the cathedral metaphor, I think it's the architecture. The overall design, the flow of the story, the structural symmetries. So on this week's NACOcast, I'm going to give you a lightning quick tour of this musical cathedral. We'll call it a Messiah Digest. To begin, what is the intent and design of Handel's Messiah? What's it all about? Well, first of all, let me tell you what it's not. It's not really a nativity story, nor is it a crucifixion story, though it contains elements of both. As a dramatic whole, the Messiah is a representation of the fulfillment of redemption. In its three parts, it describes the prophecy and realization of God's plan to redeem mankind by the coming of the Messiah, the accomplishment of redemption by the sacrifice of Jesus, and a hymn of thanksgiving for the final victory over death, three different ideas. Each of these parts are further divided into subdivisions, subgroups really, organized into repeated structures of recitatives, arias, and choruses. The choruses often act as prologue to the ensuing idea or as an epilogue to what came before. The overture in E minor begins gravely. And even a virile allegro does not alter the rather dark impression. And that's the point. It represents mankind's spiritual darkness. But the light of God illuminates this landscape with a surprising shift to E major and the tenor's words comfort ye. This first group of texts is all about God's promise, and they are largely taken from the prophecies of Isaiah. Take comfort, my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim that her hard service has been completed and her sin paid for. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will sing it. All in all, this opening group offers a cheerful message about God's promise, but next a striking mood change. Oh, the Lord,
1: the Lord of hosts, while, I...
0: This shift in tonality to D minor begins the second group, emphasizing the remoteness of God from man. The coming of the Lord will shake the earth, his arrival like the refiner's fire. And then the alto soloist asks meekly who shall stand when the Lord appears? including this group, a chorus describing the Day of Judgment in an energetic G minor. The fear of the power of God now yields to joy. For God's promise is materializing. First, in the prophecy of the virgin birth... change to D major is striking, isn't it? It creates a mood of optimism that continues in a very lyrical alto aria. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain, lift up your voice with a shout. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. I've often spoken on these nacocasts about the critical importance of keys and tonality. Here, a return to B minor is so effective in reminding us of the impotence of mankind that without the Messiah, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. The B minor tonality continues as the bass explains that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So, in a dazzling chorus in G major, that victorious light breaks through. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And with this course the promise portion of the messiah comes to an end and we move from isaiah to the new testament and the nativity scenes from the book of luke the transition is accomplished with a striking little pastoral symphony in c major which handel called the pifa the inspiration for this would have come from handel's youth in italy when he would have heard the wandering musicians from the Calabrian hills, the pifferari, who would wander into Rome as Christmas approached, honoring the Madonna with their music-making. In quick succession, four delightful soprano recitatives from the second chapter of Luke describe the appearance of the angels to the shepherds, culminating in a brilliant chorus. As for the Nativity, Handel gives us no more. Nothing of the wanderings of the shepherds to Bethlehem, the adoration or the flight to Egypt. Rather, in accordance with the basic structure of this oratorio, we hear only the briefest announcement of the coming of the Messiah. Part of what makes the choices of the Messiah texts so effective is how they allow only an indirect light to fall on the Messiah through prophecies and shepherds' visions. What follows are two great arias and a brief recitative outlining the prophecies of Christ's redemptive miracles on earth. The first, a setting from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. He will proclaim peace to the nations. The second aria in this group blends Old and New Testament texts of Isaiah and Matthew. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. This final section of the first part of Messiah has given us all we need to know of Christ's earthly wanderings leading up to the Passion. It ends with a chorus of inconceivable lightness and optimism. His yoke is easy, his burden light. In biblical times, a yoke was made of wood and customized to fit a particular animal. If it was properly fit, it wouldn't irritate the animal's neck, so pulling a wagon would be easy, especially with a light load. Jesus assures us that the ultimate end of bearing his yoke is our eternal inheritance. And Handel's orchestration paints the picture so beautifully. It's a miracle of transparency and ease. So now, a quick review of part one of the Messiah. We've heard the prophecy of salvation, the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, and what this means for mankind, the prophecy of the virgin birth, the appearance of the angels, and finally, Christ's redemptive miracles on earth. Part two is all about the Passion. From the book of John, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Handel loved to use these tightly dotted rhythms whenever he wanted to create a particularly dramatic emphasis. Here they prefigure the character of the passion music that follows. The second part of the Messiah concentrates on the idea of redemption through the personal suffering of Christ. For the transgression of thy people was he stricken. The idea of suffering and its importance for us dominates the first subgroup, which begins with perhaps the most poignant of all the arias. It's a decidedly subjective and personally expressive aria. And in contrast, three successive choruses are now presented, all taken from Isaiah. Surely he hath borne our griefs, with his stripes we are healed, and we like sheep. In these choruses, the community speaks. In the first, two of the Redeemer's Acts, and in the third chorus, a picture of mankind wandering aimlessly. Listen here to how Handel captures the uncertainty and the vacillation of man in this spiritual vacuum by continually moving brief sections of the text from one voice group to another. Why did Handel choose this compositional strategy of grouping three profane crowd choruses together? I think the explanation is found in the suddenly dark and slow conclusion to this third chorus, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. If we, like sheep, was primarily about the futility of godlessness, the next section deals with the conscious denial of the Messiah. All they that see him laugh him to scorn, and the chorus, he trusted in God that he would deliver him. It's a fugue subject in C minor and what an effect it has invoking the wrath of the mob with its punchy rhythms and tight counterpoint. The first six pieces of the second part have been dominated by choruses broken only by the single aria he was despised. In the next group, the chorus retires and Handel uses several beautiful arias to return to that theme of Christ's suffering. Thy rebuke and the lamentoso, Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto his sorrow. Listen here to the faltering and broken accompaniment to this text. I find it fascinating that the text descriptions of the Passion in this section are all old rather than New Testament. The careful choice of words from Psalms, Lamentations, and Isaiah is certainly effective in portraying the complete loneliness of Christ, who has taken the burden of the world's sins. But now, in the space of a four-measure recitative, Handel takes us from gloom to a suggestion of hope. So simple, really. Two measures of B minor, two measures of E major is all it takes. It's a very subtle change in tonality, but it's incredibly effective in preparing for what comes after. It's an aria that I love, an Andante in A major that describes a world delivered from hell, from darkness, and from despair. This is all about joy and life fulfillment. And this same joy is now acclaimed in a grand chorus of jubilation. Lift up your heads, open your gates that the King of Glory may enter. The next section of the Messiah has been subject to numerous cuts and omissions over the years. So let me just summarize what remains of part two. There's an announcement of victory, thou art gone up on high, celebrations of the spread of the gospel, the Lord gave the word and great was the company of the preachers, and then the more intimate soprano meditation, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel. Next, Handel turns to the rejection of the gospel in a group of three movements with text from the second psalm. It's the handle of Italian opera, an aggressive and forceful aria for the bass Why Do the Nations So Furiously Rage Together? The psalm text continues in the form of another definitive crowd chorus shouting, let us break their bonds asunder. Here the kings of the earth take a stand against God and his anointed one, breaking the chains of obedience. And this flows into a recitative, and aria, describing God's angry response to all this defiance. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. that jumping bass line, and the angular ostinato rhythm in the violins is so effective in describing the castigation of the ungodly.
1: With the of
0: well, we come now to that great musical icon, the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah. The word comes from the Hebrew verb halelu, praise, and Yah, meaning Yahweh, or God. This chorus has become such a standalone monument in Western music, it's easy to overlook its key structural role in the Messiah. Well, let's quickly review the design of the second part of the Messiah. First, the sacrifice and the agony on the cross, then Christ's passage through hell and his resurrection, his ascension, the beginning of evangelism, and finally, the world and its ruler's rejection of the gospel. The effect of the jubilant Hallelujah Chorus is to show God's final triumph as the omnipotent ruler. In one of my previous Nakokasts I've discussed the particular optimism of the key of D major. Perhaps all those later sunshiny D major movements from Mozart to Brahms and Mahler might have their root in this extraordinary D major blaze of universal light. The finality of that chorus could almost bring the entire oratorio to an end. But there is more, and it's decidedly different from what came before. The dramatic development of parts one and two gives way in the third part to an atmosphere of reflection. It's really all about the aftermath of the birth and the passion, the promise of bodily resurrection and redemption, the day of judgment, and the ultimate victory over sin and death. This exquisite statement of belief, combining fragments from the Old Testament book of Job with a phrase from the New Testament, has an unusual feature in the orchestration. The first and the second violins play in unison as one voice, and it adds a purity and a simplicity to the soprano's words of faith. Chorus that follows has two highly contrasting ideas. It opens with a very grave few measures, usually sung by a solo group from within the choir. It's a brief sojourn in A minor, and it's interrupted suddenly by a brilliant exclamation of the resurrection in C major. Randall's picture of the day of judgment as foretold in Corinthians. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Most modern performances of the Messiah eliminate a whole section of music at this point, moving instead to the concluding choral trilogy, setting text from the book of Revelations. First, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. final choruses draw the Messiah to its conclusion. Christ has achieved victory over death. Sweeping in its scope, this great masterpiece leaves us with a deep sense of spiritual reassurance. It's said that Handel was often found crying during the 24 days he took to write the Messiah, feeling he was being touched by the miraculous. 260 years later, we're still marveling at this work of genius. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this whirlwind tour of the Messiah. It brings to a close our NACOcasts for this year, but I'll be back in early January with another show. I hope you can join me. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to Nacocast at gmail.com, or you can use our toll-free telephone number, 1-866-850-2787, extension 772. Let me give that to you again. 1-866-850-2787, extension 772. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. So, until next time, this is Christopher Millard saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.